This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so, so this is the outline I thought we would, we would cover in this hour. So what is integrative medicine? Some, sometimes that term, uh, people aren't clear uh, what that is. And then I'm going to pull out some of the particular topics that I think people are most interested in or might have the most experience with, looking at some of the plant medicines and supplements that are, that are available that are out there. Also acupuncture, um, which here in San Francisco now is, is hardly, hardly uh, exotic or complementary. It's, just, it's really mainstream. Um, mind-body medicine, a favorite of mine. And um, some resources that you might want, both as health professionals. Actually, how many of you are health professionals? Great. And so I'll point out some resources for both health professionals and general public. Um, And then I've got a fun uh, little plant quiz. I'll just give you pictures of plants that have uh, medical historical importance and see if we can identify them. Um, And then we have a little time for questions and discussion. Um, So this is what integrated medicine is not. (laughs) Although we love the placebo effect. So we, we feel like that's, that's a positive. That's, that's something, if that is a part of the therapeutic interaction, all the better. Um, but, but often there's a criticism that, oh, the therapies that we use are just placebo. But I'll give you a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, that that's not the case. So what is integrative medicine? If we, if we kind of build a definition, and, you know, you'll get different definitions from different people, but I start with that word integrative. So what, what is being integrated? Well, at the most basic level, it's these complementary therapies that we'll talk about and the conventional therapies, the, the medicines, the surgeries, the, the different kinds of therapies you find in conventional medicine. So we integrate those. But it's, of course, much more than that. It's not just sticking together these, these disparate traditions. There's a lot more sophistication to it. And some of the fundamental principles of integrative medicine are going to sound very familiar to you health professionals because I would say most of them are shared with conventional medicine, at least in its ideal form. So here's some of those principles. It's evidence-based. So we, we want to base our practice, the things we recommend for people as therapies, on scientific evidence. We also expand a little bit our, our definition of evidence. So if there's a randomized controlled trial that's very high quality and it shows a certain outcome, that's good evidence. If Chinese medicine has been doing something for 4,500 years and it, they believe that it works and thousands of people are practicing it, feeling that it works, that's a form of evidence too. You could argue whether it's more or less robust, but that's another kind of evidence, I would argue. So we like everything that we do to be evidence-based. Patient-centered, so this... this, this um, recognition that this is a sacred encounter almost the person coming for the person in distress in pain and suffering needing something and coming to the healer Um, and so the importance of the relationship is actually central and that's certainly true I think um, ideally in conventional medicine as well but we really we really try not to lose sight of that Um, it's also holistic as you would expect so uh, we're trying to address all aspects of someone's health because it can really matter, um, you know, the environment someone's in, or the the you know perhaps there's a there's a medical disease, but there's a some sort of um, spiritual uh, crisis going on that's actually impacting the health in a way very profoundly. So, mind, body, spirit, as we say, social, community, environmental, all these all these dimensions to our health few more principles of integrative medicine. We really have a strong emphasis on foundational health practices. Just 
I always tell people before I pull out the natural medicines, we want to give your body and your mind what it needs. It's already a sort of a self-healing unit. So we just want to give it what, it what it has evolved to use to be healthy. So that would be what you're eating, your sleep, exercise, how much stress you're under. Some people would also add breathing, the way you breathe. So these very foundational things, we start there. I, I'm not going to reach for natural or pharmaceutical medicines until we've addressed these. Um, prevention, of course, always preferable to treatment of a disease once it's established. And then this is uh, slightly different, I think. We, we really keep in mind that there's an innate capacity for healing. The biological system of the human being is innately, look at when you cut yourself. You don't even have to pay attention to it. You might need to clean it once or something, but you don't even have to pay attention to it. It heals. I would even argue in the psychological dimensions, this, this, this um, self-healing uh, uh, drive uh, is there, and it makes sense. Uh, this, this, we wouldn't be successful uh, evolutionarily if we didn't have capacity to heal. So a lot of what we do in integrative medicine is try to find what's preventing that from working in your case. What are the, what are the blocks or the barriers that, that your innate capacity for healing is not being successful? We always try to use safest therapies first before we escalate depending on your response. If we use a safe therapy, you get better, we're done. If you don't, we escalate to more um, to things that could have more side effects. Um, and then finally, this idea of integration. We'll bring in these complementary modalities. So you might be getting your, your cancer chemotherapy. Um, we're not going to stop that, and we're going to bring in Chinese medicine, which is so exquisite for supporting people in their cancer care. So that's bringing together the integration of these therapies. And the, um, uh, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, has uh, a center, the, um, the National Center for Complementary Alternative Medicine. Actually, Margaret was a, a senior officer in that government organization that funds most of integrative medicine research. And they actually um, categorized complementary modalities into five categories that I have found useful, so I've held on to it. And I even use it in my clinical work. So, one category is the biologically based therapies. These would be very familiar to you. So these, are, you know, these are things that you would, um, you would put in your body, you know, the fish oil you ingest or the herb that you, that you ingest, um, probiotics, any, any sort of um, – it's really following almost the, the traditional uh, pharmaceutical conventional medicine model of putting some chemical – uh, in this case, natural and could be sort of a complex a cocktail of chemicals, but, but putting a biological product in to, to yield an effect on your biological system. Um, the second category, mind-body medicine, we'll talk about that. Um, often people define this as, uh, well, you're using your mind to influence the health of your body. That, I would argue, is a, is a we can start there as a definition, but that's not adequate, and I'll talk more about that, but, but you get the idea using the mind to, um, uh, to optimize our health. Manual medicine, just like it sounds, it's when a, a therapy where the practitioner puts their hands on you. So that could be for manipulation, like osteopathy or chiropractic, or it could be massage, and there's, there are others. Um, last two of the five categories, energy medicine. Uh, so the energy medicine field, there's, there's, uh, this is the one with the least research. Um, but it posits that there is a bioelectric field, an energy field that's generated by each living organism, and that that field can be influenced by a practitioner. And um, sometimes my conventional colleagues really roll their eyes at this one. 
And it's reasonable. There's not a lot of research on this. However, if you think about it, I would argue for you know, my conventional colleagues, we do EKGs all the time. We do EEGs all the time. Those are measuring these electrical fields. And actually, with a, with a sensitive enough uh, sensor, you can, you, can do an, you can measure the electrical uh, impulses from the heart out uh, like a foot or more. And similarly with the EEG, although it's not, I think it's just a couple of inches. So these bioelectric fields are quite real. Um, and and there's, a, there's a domain in medicine, in integrated medicine, that, that feels like perhaps those fields can be influenced for the benefit of, of our health. Finally, there are whole systems. Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, homeopathy, naturopathy. These are whole systems that will cut across, actually, all these categories. And some of these are ancient. So, for example, take Chinese medicine. Um, if I back up here. So, Chinese medicine, they'll certainly prescribe you herbs. And so that would be category one. Uh, they will often incorporate Tai Chi, which is another, another therapy that can influence the Qi or the life energy, according to the Chinese medicine paradigm. Manual medicine, they have a form of massage called Tui Na. Um, um, and some would argue acupuncture itself is a, is a form of energy medicine because it's manipulating the flow of Qi through the body. So in a sense, some of these whole systems, they cut through, through all these categories. So I hope that gives you like a, a quick uh, sort of taxonomy almost of the complementary therapies. Okay, so let's, let's move ahead and, um, and talk about these botanicals and supplements. I chose these four because generally I think I can show you the evidence is pretty positive. So these are things that probably work. And you can use, if you're clinicians, I'll show you, you can use them. Um, and if you're lay public interested in taking them, I, I can give you some advice about that. So, um, and I'll, I'll include some research and I'll try to, I'll try to toggle between doctor talk and, and general public talk uh, back and forth. Um, so here we go. Something from the supplement card tonight <laughs> after your meal. Um, and as I go through this, uh, these four products, um, we'll do it this way. What are, what are the indications? Like, what are, what are these used for? How might they work biochemically? What's the mechanism? What is the evidence? We'll quickly run through some of the research. And then what side effects do they have? And then finally, clinical recommendations uh, if you wanted to use this as a clinician. Okay, so fish oil is kind of the darling of integrative medicine uh, because it works. Um, and there are a lot of indications for it. Most of them are cardiovascular, and those are the ones I'll focus on today. But there are a lot of other ones, too. So hypertriglyceridemia, your, your triglycerides are too high, what that means. Um, secondary prevention of coronary artery disease, meaning you've got, you already have some plaque in your coronary arteries, and we want to prevent any complication, like a heart attack. Um, that's secondary prevention. You've already got the disease, and we're trying to prevent it from, uh, from harming you. Um, hypertension, heart failure. And then under the dotted line there, uh, these are other indications potentially for fish oil, but we don't have time. I'm not going to touch on those. So just uh, quickly here, looking at mechanisms, how, how does fish oil work for hypertension and hypertriglyceridemia, all these things that we're claiming? So a lot of people have done laboratory research on fish oil, and here's the mechanisms that we've discovered. First of all, as I'll show in a moment, they, it lowers triglyceride levels, so that's, that's favorable for, for patients with heart disease. They're very potently anti-inflammatory, and that, that's part of the disease process of heart disease, actually, is inflammation. Um, lowers blood pressure, I'll show you that. Platelets are these uh, little, um, you could almost call them sub- they're almost like a cell type in your blood that form blood clots, which is great if you're hemorrhaging and you need to stop bleeding, but it's not so great if that clot is actually a heart attack. 
So just like aspirin inhibits platelets and that, that prevents heart attacks, fish oil, not as potently as aspirin, but it has the same, it, it inhibits platelets from, from aggregating, from sticking to each other. Um, so it makes you a little less likely to have the heart attack. Dysrhythmias, when, you're, when your heart is electrically unstable and starts to beat irregularly, that can be lethal depending on the type of dysrhythmia. That might be, how fi- that might be fish oil's strongest effect is, is dysrhythmias. Um, the actual formation of the atherosclerotic plaque, the cholesterol plaque that can build up in our, in our arteries, um, fish oil, there's, there's animal and laboratory uh, evidence that fish oil actually prevents that, that plaque uh, from forming uh, as fast. And then finally, the elasticity of our arteries is, is actually, the more we learn about them, it's very important. The, the inner lining, the endothelium of the arteries has a lot of relevance in terms of is someone going to have a heart attack. And so fish oil uh, seems to improve endothelial function biochemically and physically, actually makes it more elastic. Okay, so what's the evidence looking at the, the, the indication of hypertriglyceridemia? There's, this, this is rock solid. There, there are lots of uh, randomized controlled trials, and they're unanimous. All of them show that fish oil lowers triglycerides. And it's a very large benefit, actually. It's surprisingly large. It really is equivalent to pharmaceuticals, although if you, if you maximize pharmaceutical doses, they will be stronger than fish oil. But, but otherwise, it's, it's, you, can, you can lower triglycerides with fish oil in, um, I would say, at least half of cases with uh, people with high triglycerides. Um, it's so, um, here's the dose, it's a little bit high, I'll talk about that later. It's so mainstream that the American Heart Association recommends it for high triglycerides. There's even an FDA-approved version of fish oil um, to, to use for this, and insurance companies will cover it when it's used for this purpose. Um, and that's, that's a reference for you. Throughout the presentation, you'll see some references. Um, so what about preventing heart attacks? Secondary prevention of coronary artery disease. There are, again, several, there are dozens of randomized controlled trials that altogether, if you add up the number of patients, it's, like, it's on the order of 20, more than 20,000 patients looked at. There's one sentinel study that really set, the, set the, the tone for the research on this. In 1999, this Italian study, the Ghisi Prevenzioni study, 11,000 patients they, they looked at. These are people who had, had heart attacks in the last 90 days. And they were given fish oil or vitamin E or fish oil and vitamin E or just regular cardiac care. The outcomes were, were extraordinary. Large reduction in sudden cardiac death. That's probably due to dysrhythmias. When people have heart disease, they die suddenly. It's probably due to a dysrhythmia. Um, total cardiovascular mortality, dying related to your heart in any way, and Overall mortality. So that's really, for those of you scientifically minded, you recognize this is quite extraordinary, these findings. Now, there is valid criticism of this study in that uh, there was a 25% dropout rate. And it was not placebo-controlled. That fourth group, remember I said fish oil, vitamin E, fish oil and vitamin E, and then nothing except the regular cardiac care. Um, uh, that, that was not a placebo-controlled group. Although with, with four arms like that, you could argue placebo control becomes less important. Um, so studies, let's see what this next slide, okay, so um, studies since 1999 up until the last couple of years have been very positive and they kind of confirm this great benefit of the fish oil. In the last couple of years, a couple of studies, negative studies have come out and they raise a really interesting question that I think remains unanswered, which is modern cardiologic care is much better than it was in 1999. We get everybody who's had a heart attack on an aspirin, 
a statin, a beta blocker, maybe an ACE inhibitor. These, have, these are very beneficial, and they prevent death uh, and further heart attacks. So the question then is, well, we got, if we got all these great drugs, and if you got your patient on all those great drugs, would adding fish oil help even more? That's the question. And, it, and I would have to say it's unanswered. But there are two studies that tried to answer it recently. Um, this first one, um, the problem, the, I say this was, this, was, this was a tremendous success as a, as a, as a clinical um, uh, endeavor, but, but not as a research endeavor. So this, if you look at uh, this guideline-adjusted therapy, so they, they took people who'd had a heart attack, and they put them on the aspirin, the statin, the beta blocker, all the drugs they should be on, and they did it so well that like over 95% of the people were taking the medicines like they were supposed to. Oh, wow. And so none of them, so their event rate, the, 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 their heart attack rate was like, well, I should say their, their event rate, which includes heart attacks and other things, was something like 1.5%. It was so low, the control group was so good that the study was underpowered to show a benefit of fish oil unless it was like huge, like bigger than 25% or something. So... So bravo that they did so well for their patients, but actually it, it kind of confounded the study. So it, so it suggests we'd have to have a much larger study to try to answer this question. And then the next study, this was a big one, came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. They only used 400 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids. That's really an adequate dose. It's less than half of what we would <coughs> recommend and what all the other studies looked at for heart disease. So, so that, that one's hard to use, I think. Um, so, so to me, that's an important question. Does fish oil... If you, on top of aspirin and beta blocker, statin, does it help or not? We don't know. Um, I, my hunch is it does, but less than it did, say, in 1999, when not everybody, only 60% of people were on statins in that study. You know, and so fish oil, fish oil could show a bigger effect. Okay, what about fish oil for blood pressure? The answer is yes. Again, we have several dozen trials, and we have three meta-analyses. That's a kind of a study where they, they sort of they take all the individual studies and they lump them all together with statistical sophistication, and they, and they sort of try to generalize about all the data that's been generated from all the studies. And all these meta-analyses are positive that fish oil indeed lowers blood pressure. It's just a little bit. But every millimeter of mercury counts. Every millimeter of mercury that you reduce the blood pressure translates into less cardiovascular disease, heart attack, hospitalization, death. So the, dropping the systolic blood pressure three to six millimeters of mercury is significant, even though it seems like, well, that doesn't sound like a lot. But it really, it really is. It matters. And when you look at pharmaceuticals and other drugs, if you get that kind of blood pressure lowering, you consider that effective. Um, okay. Heart failure. So you remember the Gizi, the Italian group? So they, they continue to do um, the multiple, multiple publications. And they looked at patients now with heart failure, gave them fish oil. This is more recent. Very large study, almost 7,000. Again, very dramatic outcomes. Reduced hospitalizations for these patients who were on the fish oil and reduced overall mortality. Very impressive. Unfortunately... There are not a lot of other studies on this. There's two, and they're small, and they're, they're, not, as, they're not sort of high quality. So, so you could say, we've got a great study here, but it's just one. So I, I personally, I do put people with heart failure on fish oil, um, but I, I would say it's not sort of universally standard of care at this point. Um, when we get to side effects, we can discuss how it's, it's pretty safe to put someone on fish oil, so why not? So side effects, as we get into more clinical details here. So the main side effects, there's no, there's no, knock on wood, there's no serious side effects that we've discovered. One exception I'll mention, 
And mostly, it's about 5% of people get some kind of gastrointestinal distress. They get the fishy breath or the burps or, you know, the, um, if you give enough fish oil, sometimes it loose stools. Um, now, for clinicians, or all of us, I guess we know, LDL, the bad cholesterol, that can go up just, just like on the order of 3 to 5% with a lot of fish oil as therapy. But the good news is if you fractionate that LDL, they're larger and more buoyant. So really, you have not increased the risk profile. You've increased the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, but you've actually, the, the, the profile of that LDL is much improved. Um, you might even get a, like a 1% to 2% increase in your HDL. Um, cod liver oil is a great way to get omega-3 fatty acids. It's cheaper, but it has often a lot of vitamin A in it. So if someone is using cod liver oil to supplement with omega-3, you just want to check the vitamin A content. Um, and lastly, um, the risk of bleeding. So a lot of people are on anticoagulants like warfarin, Coumadin, and now there's these new ones, Dabigatran, and... Um, uh, people are very concerned that fish oil will, will cause more bleeding. And actually, that's, when you drill down into the evidence and the research, it's, that's, that's inflated. That concern is, is, is inflated. It is true, but only at high doses of fish oil. Um, this last one, ICD stands for um, implantable cardiac defibrillator. People with really bad heart failure or, or they've already had a life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia sometimes will implant these devices that will automatically, like Dick Cheney, former vice president, he has one. It will give you a shock if you go into a lethal rhythm. It's, it's already in there, and it'll give you that shock, just like the, the paddles, you know, on TV. They put it on your chest. That's already in your chest with these ICDs. There have been three studies on fish oil in patients with ICDs. One showed benefit, fewer shocks, meaning the fish oil was preventing probably dysrhythmia. One showed no difference. One showed increased mortality with fish oil. So now everybody's hands off, and I personally, I, I don't, I, I'm very tempted, but, but I don't. A cardiac patient with an ICD, I do not use fish oil until we get that further studied. Um, this is, a, I just got this off the web, you know, the fishy breath and the fishy smell. This, you don't have to be afraid of fish smell. This, this, this woman is not afraid of that. Um, so what about some side effects? or some, some of the additional concerns about fish oil. Um, so mercury, as we know, we've contaminated our planet to the point that all the fish, many of the fish have mercury in them, and all of them have PCBs in them. So what about the fish oil? Are we concentrating these toxins? The answer is no. Um, for, it, we're lucky in that you know, some companies do this really well and others, others don't even try, but it turns out almost everybody that makes fish oil, there's something about the distillation process that excludes mercury. So... Great news there. No, almost, almost none of the products you buy in the store have mercury. And they do all have PCBs, but so do all the fish. And they don't have, the fish oil doesn't have more PCBs than, than anything else from the ocean. Um, there's a government s- a standard for safety, the amount of PCBs that can be allowed in a fish or, or a product. And uh, the, most products, that when they're uh, tested by independent third-party laboratories, come out clean. Um, I'll give you a resource at the end where you can find some. Some don't come out clean, so you want to make sure you are getting a, a clean uh, product. So final recommendations for fish oil. So you know when you buy it, it almost always it says a 1,000 milligram gel capsule on the front. They're almost always like 1,000. Turn it over. That, that actually doesn't matter. It's turning it over, looking at the nutritional label, and seeing how much EPA and DHA is in there. EPA, these are, these are the omega-3 fatty acids. There's a lot of other stuff in fish oil, a lot of other fat. These are the omega-3 fatty acids. These are the ones that prevent heart attack, etc. So 
acosopentanoic acid, docosohexanoic acid. These two are the ones that you want to add those up. So it's, yes, 1,000 milligrams of fish oil, but turn it over. Add up the EPA and DHA per capsule. Sometimes the serving size on the label will be two capsules, so you have to pay attention to that. Add that up. That's how much omega-3 you're getting. So if I say, you know, gee, I recommend for you one gram of omega-3 fatty acids to prevent a heart attack, that might be two grams of fish oil, or three even. It depends on the product. If it's a very dilute product, it's going to be cheap, but also you're going to have to take a lot more of it, so in the end it's not so much cheaper. Um, the doses are here. You'll notice for hypertriglyceridemia and for hypertension, the dose is higher. You have to start with this higher dose. And for um, heart failure and coronary artery disease prevention, it's one gram. It's a lower dose. So therefore, when you go to the store, if you're just taking a gram a day, you can get by with the cheaper products, the, the more widely available products. But if you're using one of these higher doses, you don't want to take six or eight capsules a day. So then you, you want to get a more concentrated product. It'll be more expensive at the moment of purchase, but it actually might not be overall in terms of how fast you go through it. And it'll just be fewer, fewer capsules to swallow. Um, uh, you can buy it in oil form or in capsule, gel capsule form. The gel caps don't smell as much, um, uh, so, but the oil is cheaper. So there you go. And brand matters. Some brands, if they're not fresh, you'll get more burps. And if, so if you, if you get that with a fish oil product, switch products before you give up on fish oil. Um, some, some of them are flavored. That might help you know, if you have a fish problem. Uh, you can use lemon flavored or peppermint flavored or whatever. Um, and if you really don't like it and your lover says, oh, you've got some fishy breath here, then um, you can freeze the capsules and, and keep them in the freezer. And then when you want to take them, which would be before meals, uh, pop it in. And the idea is it doesn't thaw out until it gets through your stomach. This is our hope. Until it gets through your stomach and into the, past the pyloric sphincter. And then after that, you know, nothing, the, the, the odor would not, would not come up uh, through the stomach, through the esophagus. Uh, there are vegetarian options in the interest of time. I'm going to skip them. It's harder to get omega-3s, but it's possible. And especially as we're developing algae sources of, of omega-3s, that it's, make, it's making it easier. Okay, St. John's wort. Um, so I love, I love plants. I love plant medicines. And I love their names even. Uh, so, so I won't go into hypericum, although that's interesting too. The perforatum, the species name in there, so if you pick a leaf from a St. John's wort plant and, and hold it to the sunlight, it looks like someone has perforated it perfectly with, with a pin. There are these little translucent holes. And th these are the glands in the leaf where they produce the oil. Uh, and so that's, that's how it got its name. Um, and then the common name, St. John's wort, presumably because it, 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 uh, there's a couple of theories about it. The, the main one is that it flowers at about the time of the Feast of St. John, late June, June 24. Um, there it is, kind of a more macro view. And then here it is growing wildly in a meadow. You know, this is, this, some people consider this a, a real pest. Farmers don't like it, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, but it works for depression. And, um, and I'll just mention quickly the somatoform disorders. So, again, we've got a lot of evidence here. Oh, let me, let me, sorry, do the mechanisms first. So we don't really know how any antidepressant works. But we always say, oh, well, it increases your serotonin or it you know, increases your norepinephrine. And we think that's how it works. Well, same with St. John's work. We've, we've measured now serotonin goes up, norepinephrine goes up, and dopamine goes up. So it is, it is altering neurotransmitter levels in your, in your brain. 
Um, there are a lot of studies. This is one of the most extensively studied herbs. Um, there are over 60 good studies on this. And also a Cochrane review. For those of you who don't know what a Cochrane review is, it's a really rigorous, evidence-based um, review of all the research uh, that's available on a, on a topic. And the, um, the Cochrane review, kind of, it's kind of the highest standard. If, you, if, you, if they say it's good, it's good. They, so this is pretty impressive. St. John's wort is more effective than placebo. They concluded, okay, that's good. It's equal to pharmaceuticals. It has fewer side effects than pharmaceuticals. This is, this is pretty amazing. Actually, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, in Germany, physicians will prescribe this first uh, for depression. Um, here, I just, so it went head-to-head with, with uh, Celexa, Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, and came out equal or better. Um, these are the references. Um, I'll just mention, somatoform disorders uh, is when, um, when someone's suffering psychologically, but for whatever reasons, psychically, they manifest these symptoms physically. So it's very frustrating sometimes for the clinicians. You know, oh, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And, a, and then the clinician wants to go in there and do a CAT scan or endoscopy or something, and it's, it's, it's not the stomach. You know, it's, it's, it's some sort of psychic distress, somatoform disorders. And there's, there's only two studies here instead of 60 for depression. Um, but they're, they're really good, and they were really, the, the effect size was really large with great statistical significance. And it's so important, I think, for us as clinicians to be able to attend to people who, who and, and for the costs of healthcare as well, to attend to people with somatoform disorders that, that I always bring this up, that St. John's work probably works for this. Um, side effects, so it's pretty well tolerated. You saw it. It had fewer side effects than the pharmaceuticals in the, in the Cochrane Review. Photosensitivity, this is why the farmers don't like it, because it even happens to the animals. So if you, some people, you ingest St. John's wort, you go out into the sun, you will sunburn much more easily and you might develop a rash instead of just a sunburn. Um, but the animals will too. So they'll, they'll just be grazing and they'll eat it and, uh, and then they'll get, uh, they'll actually lose their hair. Their, their, their hide will get inflamed and they'll actually lose their hair. So if you see a lot of bald cows, <laughs> that's what happened. Pardon? Bald, happy cows. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. These cows are not depressed. Uh, and they're not visiting their primary care clinician as, as much with complaints, somatoform complaints. Um, maybe a headache, um, restlessness. Actually, it's just like, you know, if, if you take Zoloft or something, there's these nuisance, it's a pretty safe drug, it's, there's these nuisance side effects like headache, nausea, kind of restless, your energy can change a little bit. The St. John's wort very similar, which is kind of reassuring that it's probably, it's probably really working. Um, uh, in fact, you can have withdrawal symptoms from St. John's wort reportedly, just like you can from a pharmaceutical antidepressant. So I always wean it off if somebody's going to discontinue it. Here's the big thing, herb-drug interactions. This is the poster child herb for herb-drug interactions. It is very real and it's very important. If you're on pharmaceuticals, you have to be very careful if you're going to add St. John's wort. It really, it really does affect you. Um, so I, I won't spend more time on that, except the St. John's wort revs up your liver a bit. These certain enzymes that digest your medicines, so they'll, you digest your medicines faster, so the blood levels will go lower for certain medicines. Um, here's a... <laughs> now, I haven't seen such dramatic side effects, but my guess is, just from looking at the fellow... And the, 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 I think it was probably saw palmetto that, that caused this side effect. Um, okay, so recommendations. This is a good, this is a good medicine for, for depression. Here's another problem with it, though. Besides the drug interactions, you've got to take it three times a day. 
that hardly anybody can do that. That's actually the main shortcoming, I think, of St. John's work. Um, if you buy it, you want it standardized to these uh, constituents because that, that's usually that's mostly you can assume that's a marker for good quality of product. Okay, probiotics very quickly. Um, so this is a um, an electron micrograph of your gut showing the probiotic valiantly defending your colon from the invading pathogen there. Um, so what are probiotics? Again, just like the fish, there are a lot of indications. I'm just going to go over a couple of them, though. Uh, antibiotic-associated diarrhea, and especially Clostridium difficile, what we call C. diff, prevention. That's a, that's a particular nasty, nasty bacteria that causes a, a, a diarrhea and a colitis, and potentially can even be lethal. definitely complicates uh, critically ill patients. Um, under this line are other indications that I'm not going to review but that you could use probiotics for, and there's evidence. In, uh, the IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. IBD is inflammatory bowel disorder, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Pouchitis is related to ulcerative colitis. Um, and then, um, man, I had a miracle cure of a little kid with very severe eczema. Uh, the uh, probiotics really did the trick. Um, so how do they work? They, just like that picture showed, they, they, they colonize, they, they set up the house and, and they um, prevent the, the invading uh, or less healthy bacteria from establishing residence in your gut. They also affect the immune system because you've got a lot of immune cells in your gut because think of it, we're ingesting the outside world, right, when we eat and we swallow, you know, all that bacteria, everything you put in is loaded, bacteria and fungi and whatever. So your, your gut is just lined with these white blood cells just waiting, just waiting to see who's going to get in, who's going to get into the blood and who can't get into the blood. Um, so probiotics actually help your immune system and your gut modulate that um, and then actually maintain the integrity of your gut wall. Because if, if, the, if the gut is, um, is too permeable, then things get into your blood that shouldn't be, and you can have a lot of, lot of health problems, especially uh, immune-based health problems. Um, so what's the evidence? Uh, we got a lot that uh, it, and again, a Cochrane review and 12 meta-analyses, that uh, indeed probiotics will prevent. So if you take antibiotics, a certain percentage of people will get diarrhea. Probiotics will reduce that percentage of people that get diarrhea. Um, now looking at Clostridium difficile, C. diff, that really nasty. So again, this is an antibiotic-associated diarrhea, but it's a really bad one. So we single it out because it's it's so important. Um, we have fewer studies, uh, but still not bad. Uh, we got twenty over twenty studies and three meta-analyses on those studies showing yes um, that probiotics will prevent C. diff. But there's a little twist that's interesting. If you take, you know, most probiotics are bacteria, like lactobacillus or something, but there is a yeast one, Saccharomyces boulardii. And it turns out for C. diff um, that if you've had it once and you don't want it to relapse or to recur, it's the yeast probiotic, Saccharomyces boulardii, that will be most helpful. So if you're trying to prevent C. diff in the first place, that would be, here, let me, I'm going to move ahead to the slide where I say this. Um, Oh, here it is. So, um, so you want to use a lactobacillus or, or lactobacillus and other genera of bacteria, like bifidobacterium, for primary prevention. But if someone's had C. diff, it would be better to use the yeast probiotic to prevent a recurrence of the C. diff. I'm going to back up just for a second here. 
and it's these, these, these general recommendations, if you wanted to use probiotics to prevent uh, diarrhea from uh, um, antibiotics, um, you want to choose, as I said, lactobacillus and another genus like bifidobacterium. Those are my, I think, the most important ones. The species, I tell you, it doesn't seem to matter at this point. I mean, the, the research is very active in this area, but it's almost like almost any species seems to work. So I, I don't, I tell people, sorry? Uh, lactobacillus and the other one is bifidobacterium and uh, and there'll be different species you know lactobacillus gg lactobacillus rhamnosus but I, I i wouldn't get too hung up on the species you just want to get lactobacillus of some kind and bifidobacterium of some kind that would make a good general probiotic um, so the studies that look at this they have you take it while you're on the antibiotic or while you're on the antibiotic plus an additional seven days so i tell people just do the additional seven days why not um, there, there are n- almost no serious side effects from probiotics. There have been case reports of sepsis, meaning these bacteria that you're ingesting get into your blood and, can, and even one death occurred. These were critically ill, immunocompromised patients. So we'd have to be really careful about using this in the ICU or, some, or if someone, even an ambulatory patient who's really immunocompromised, caution with probiotics. Okay, so cranberry, there's the cranberry. And you know, if any of you have cooked cranberries, made cranberry sauce, it floats, right? It's very light and it floats. So they, this is, you know, they grow it in these bogs, and typically in the Northeast. And then they, when they harvest it, they just kind of just all goes downstream. And these guys, they have these big skimmers, you know, and they just collect them all, uh, kind of neat. So why do we use this? It's to prevent urinary tract infection, not to treat it. There might be other herbs for that, but for cranberry, it's prevention of urinary tract infection. Um, how does it work? Well, the, the, um, the E. coli is the most common cause of urinary tract infection. has fimbria, these kind of, these long kind of arms sticking out like this, that they use to attach to the epithelium of the, of the urethra. That, so the, 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 the E. coli, they have to attach. Otherwise, when you pee, they'll just get washed away, right? So they have to be able to attach onto the epithelium. So the um, cranberry has this uh, copious amounts of proanthocyanins, these compounds that occupy all the binding sites on that fimbria. So the E. coli comes in, ready to cause an infection, puts out its fimbria and with, with all the little receptors, but the cranberry covers, it binds all those receptor sites, and so now the E. coli cannot, cannot stick to your, to your epithelium. Um, uh, over a dozen studies and meta-analyses, uh, the one last year, um, so this means relative risk, 0.62 means using cranberry greatly reduces your chance of getting a UTI when you put all those studies together. Um, there, this is a tentative conclusion. I don't, I don't think we know this, but they, they said, and they only had 13 studies to work with, this, and a few of them looked at this question, is maybe the juice is better than taking cranberry capsules. Um, I would say 100% juice probably is better than capsules. I don't know about the, 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 the cranberry cocktail kind of thing that you buy. It's a lot of sugar and just a little bit of cranberry. Um, it's better if you take it more frequently. That came out in the studies. And um, it did criticize, though, there's a lot of variability in these studies. So it's hard to put them all together and make a conclusion. Um, the Cochrane Review happened three, four years ago and looked at, at that time, there were only 10 studies to look at. But again, very positive. Cranberry juice may decrease the number of symptomatic UTIs, particularly for women. In other groups, less certain, for example, neurogenic bladder, people who had a stroke and their, their bladder's not working at all, it's just overflowing, they're incontinent. Uh, cranberry didn't seem to work in that setting. Um, and a large number of dropouts. Some of these studies are funded by a, a beverage company that, that 
that sells a, about four of the studies. So, so you have to sort of squint when you look at those studies. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's only got 26% cranberry in the juice and lots of sugar. So to get the dose of cranberry that you would need, to have, you have to drink a lot of cranberry, like 480, like, like uh, 16 ounces. And um, so a lot of people drop out because that upsets their stomach. So that's, that's the gastrointestinal upset. And, in, and if you're diabetic, that's just too much sugar. To, so there is, a, there is another way. Uh, um, I'm going to skip over that. There is another way. So, so if you're going to take the cranberry co- cocktail that you see in the store, this is your dose. But if you can, if you can handle the tartness of 100% cranberry juice, you just take an ounce. Although I'd still want you to do that twice, twice a day or more, two or three times a day. But uh, you can sweeten it even if you want to, and you'll still come out better. It'll be more potent to prevent the urinary tract infection, and it will be less harmful to your health than loading up with all that sugar. Uh, frozen cranberries probably fine, although, again, it's probably got a lot of sugar in it. Um, and you can use real cranberries. That's always what we want to do in plant medicine. You always want to take the plant, not a derivative of the plant. Um, capsules might work. We have to wait and see. Um, if someone really doesn't want to do cranberry juice, I still give capsules a try. Um, and here's a little pearl for some physicians, maybe in nursing home settings, is, um, uh, or even people at home where there's urinary incontinence and a, and a lot of odor from that. Um, there's anecdotal reports that, that a low dose, just a third of the dose of cranberry, will actually diminish that odor. Uh, okay, super fast acupuncture. Really good for pain after surgery. Um, here's the evidence on that. And you'll notice that not only does it decrease pain, but it decreases people's need for, um, for opiates, for, for morphine, for, for the, the pain relievers, and therefore less opiate-related side effects. So that's nice. And that's integrative. I love it. So yes, you need a little morphine maybe after your surgery. Oh, well, we'll give you less because the acupuncture can also give you some pain relief. So now we're doing integrative medicine. Um, and then in the last few years, people are looking more not so much at the opiates, but at the um, how, how, what's your function like? Does the acupuncture relieve your pain enough that you can get out of bed sooner and walk sooner? And it looks like yes. Uh, there's even more data, though, for this. Nausea and vomiting both in the, in the chemotherapy world as well as post-operative. A lot of people, when you wake up, you're really nauseated. You might vomit. Um, so so um, I'm sure a lot of you know this, this uh, point on the wrist called pericard- in Chinese medicine uh, language called pericardium 6. Um, if, you, if you look at your wrist, and you'll see there's two creases going across here. Take the one that's, that's highest up, the distal crease here. And then if you put these two fingers together, two tendons will pop out. And if you go about two centimeters down from the, the distal crease of the wrist, in between those two tendons, that's the point. That's, that's P6. And um, you'll notice when you, like, you're going to get on a boat to go whale watching or something, they sell those little bracelets with the ball. And that's what it's supposed to do. You put on that bracelet, and it presses on that point to, to reduce your seasickness when you're out there looking, watching the whales. Um, so doing acupuncture on that point, or even acupressure, um, has shown uh, great benefit. Even the Cochrane Review uh, says it's effective. This, this, I like this. I just pulled out, there were nine of the studies, there were you know, however many studies, but nine of them compared acupuncture <laughs> with pharmaceutical, the anti-emetic medication. Uh, and acupuncture came out actually better in preventing nausea, although it came out the same in terms of preventing actual vomiting. Um, now, how about your arthritis pain? 
or how about my arthritis pain? Um, so this is mostly about knees, but really other peripheral joints were studied as well. Again, quite effective. Um, it's even in these international guidelines for treating uh, osteoarthritis. I like this one again. I pulled out this study because, the, again, it's integrative. So they looked at someone on an NSAID, you know, like, like ibuprofen, naproxen, that, that class of medicine. So they're, they're pain relievers. Um, and they said, okay, if we add acupuncture, do we get synergy? Do we get more benefit? Um, and the answer is yes. So, again, integrative medicine. Whatever you need, you know, whatever we can do to reduce your pain that's safe. Um, and then finally, cost effectiveness. This is a, a criticism of acupuncture. It's valid, I think, is the cost. You've got to come back. You know, the pain is not per- the pain relief is not permanent. You've got to come back. And so ultimately, is this cost effective? And there's very sophisticated ways to research that and calculate that. And the, the studies that have done that keep saying yes, yes, it's cost effective compared to what we're spending already. It works for other kinds of pain, and I'll just list them there. There's research on all of these. The bottom one in particular is a, is, a, is a, so women with breast cancer are on these particular drugs called aromatase inhibitors. They get these nasty joint pains that are very difficult to treat. So acupuncture helps that. That's handy, handy uh, for, for a lot of people. So, what is mind-body medicine? So I said before, so we're going to switch now from acupuncture to mind-body medicine. So I think most people think of this as, oh, this, yeah, this is the field of medicine where you use your mind to influence the health of your body. I would say let's not stop there, though. Because that still perpetuates this idea that your mind is separate from your body, right? Oh, your mind helps your body. So they're still separate in that paradigm. They're not separate. There's a bad joke about that. They're not separate. See the neck? <laughs> um, so it's, it's really more accurate just to think whatever you do to one, the mind-body is one thing. And so whatever you do to one is certainly going to influence the other because it's all one thing. There are therapies, the one I think, always think of is interferon therapy for people with chronic hepatitis. It makes people depressed. It's 40% incidence of depression. And that's because, and that's a natural product, interferon. Your, your white blood cells make that. That's probably why you get a little depressed when you get sick. Um, but it shows how anything, or, or think of, um, what about the other direction? What about doing something with your body and it influences your mind? Like you, aerobic exercise, that improves your mood, right? We know that from studies. So, so mind-body, I think there's another way to think of it. It's just, instead of mind and body, it's just mind-body. Put a hyphen there, mind-body. That's, that's kind of the way to think of it. Um, I think, since I've been blowing through all these slides, let's take a moment. I'm going to do a little, a little mindfulness moment here with you. So I'd like to do a mindfulness meditation uh, little three-minute thing here with you. So I encourage you to, to get yourselves comfortable. And, you know, any distractors like the cell phones and all this, uh, put them down and don't, don't take notes and... Um, in terms of posture, for maintaining um, alertness, it helps to, um, to have the spine a little bit erect. Like, you just don't want to be slumping. You don't, you don't have to overdo it. You can still use the chair back if you want to for support. But just kind of, it promotes a kind of a sense of alertness if you keep the spine erect. And I'll do this with you. And, and close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And just bring awareness You've got these powerful minds at your disposal, although they're a little bit undisciplined. They kind of go all over the place. So bring these, the, the attention from this powerful mind. Bring it to your breath. And you could feel the breath in a lot of different places, but let's choose the belly for now. So just feeling the movement in the belly as you breathe.
we're not trying to manipulate the breath. We're not trying to do anything, breathe in a certain way. We're just noticing, we're just feeling this phenomenon of breathing that's happening automatically. Maybe it's rough, or maybe it's smooth. Maybe it's long or short, doesn't matter. Just tuning in for a moment, feeling your breath in the belly. If your mind has wandered, just come back. Don't have to beat yourself up, you're, you're fine. Come back to the breath in the belly for a moment. See if you can stay tuned for one full breath cycle. Not just the, the beginning or the end of it, but just the full, the full breath. Notice if there are any pauses in the natural cycle of your breath. And then we'll, we'll make a couple of transitions. Our first one, when you're ready, will transition from awareness of the breath to awareness of your body as a whole sitting here. You can feel the points of contact with your feet on the ground and your, your buttocks and your back on the chair. You can feel your body, kind of scan your body. Notice, are there any areas of tension, unnecessary tension in particular? Are your shoulders riding higher than they need to? Or is your jaw tight, your hands, your fists? Just noticing if you can let go and noticing how that feels. Then we'll make one more transition now from this body awareness to your mind, just noticing the emotions. Again, you don't have to change them. That's That's not the goal here. We're just trying to tune in. So just notice, and there might be multiple emotions, or there might be just neutral, no sense of emotion. That's okay, too. Just tuning in for a moment, your emotional tone. And then when you're ready, our last transition from the emotional realm now to the thought realm, just noticing the thoughts. I'm, I'm not asking you to, to think, but these thoughts, they come unbidden. They, they just happen spontaneously. So just imagine you're kind of in a movie theater and you're looking at the screen. So you're here with a stable witness platform in your mind and you're watching what's going to come next. What, just notice which thought comes next. And you'll notice it, it comes and it stays for a little while, then it passes. Then another thought. Sometimes there's a gap between the thoughts. That's an interesting place to, to examine, to, to see what that's like.
And then once again, when you're ready, we'll just make our final transition back to where we started, back to the breath in the belly. Just feeling these next few breaths. That's all. It's, a, it's quite a vacation, actually. You don't have to do anything else except feel this belly rise and fall. And then when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes and bring your awareness back to the room around you. And if your neighbor is snoring, you can just give him a... (laughs) So I would love to hear about your experience with that, but we don't have time. I'm going to give that to James Mitchell, who's going to do that with you later. But um, that's a taste of mindfulness, which has been looked at in over 120 studies and the over, I'll just summarize in one sentence. It's a mental health benefit. So no matter what they look at, you know, people with pain, people with cancer, whatever, it's, it's really the mental health benefit that, that comes out in all the studies. Biofeedback is a great therapy for these things, uh, blood pressure, um, headache, and, and certain elimination disorders. Um, really actually extraordinary. Um, it's a, you would consider it first-line therapy for fecal incontinence. Um, guided imagery and hypnosis, they're quite similar, and it's not surprising. They show similar efficacy for people who are g- about to undergo a procedure or even after the procedure or surgery. So we got a lot of studies on that. Tai Chi, I couldn't leave without saying something about that. That is a favorite of ours, um, and we've got good studies in these areas. Fall prevention in the elderly is probably the most important, but there's a good, there's a lot of cardiac rehab and Parkinson's disease uh, has been, uh, it's been shown to be beneficial there too. Um, yoga, surprisingly little research, but our center is working to, to remedy that. Um, but so far, it looks like yoga is good for mental health and back pain. These are the resources. The, the first two are for health professionals. The bottom one is for everyone. Um, and I'll just, I'll just talk about the one on the bottom, but I'm happy to talk to health professionals uh, after the break um, about these other ones because I, I use them, and then they're very good. Um, the bottom one uh, is the only one that does product reviews. So you want to know you got you know a certain brand of St. John's work? Oh, you can look up here, or maybe you should look up here first before you go by it, and see, did that brand, was it clean? Did it pass the test? Did it really contain what the bottle says it contains? So there's, there, is, there is a third party out there that's testing a lot of these products. What is this? Digital Purpura. Very good. Digital Purpura. And uh, that's the source of digoxin, which, which health professionals here know as, as like uh, this former, former uh, staple cardiac drug. It's now fallen out of favor due to research on it. Um, how about this? Here's another. Nightshade. Yes, very good. Deadly nightshade. Source of what? Nicotine. Close. Nicotinic acid. Close, close, close. <laughs> Anticholinergic. You're in the right department. Atropine. Belladonna. Yes, atropine. It's atropa belladonna. And you know the name belladonna. I love the names. The belladonna, beautiful woman. It's because women, even actually maybe Cleopatra, they said this, but certainly women in Renaissance Italy, they, they would put these, uh, I don't know, maybe they ingested it orally. Anyway, it makes the pupils dilate. It does a lot of bad things, too, but it makes you beautiful for a little while. So <laughs> Also blurs your vision so you yeah. don't see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I, I've heard that. Uh, uh. What's this? 
Poppy. Oh, uh, pep, pep, uh, pepperum, um, somniferum. You are a star. Okay. So, and what are we, what are we talking about here? Opium. Opium. Yeah, or morphine. So what the farmers do, and this is Afghanistan uh, mostly, um, so they get these uh, kind of, uh, they look like uh, curved razor blades, and there's four of them set apart, and they, they score the seed pod from bottom to top on both sides. A thick white latex leaks out almost immediately, um, and they leave it overnight. They really have to judge the weather well here. They leave it overnight, and then the next morning they come back. It's dried to like a, a, a brown, a dry brown crust, and they scrape that off, and that's, that's already 15% morphine right there, but that can be processed into opium and heroin. Um, what's this? This is a hard one. Morning side? Morning? morning. No, no. I, I don't even think it grows in the U.S. This is the cinchona tree, the original source of quinine, which, for good or for ill, allowed Europeans to colonize uh, the Western Hemisphere, Africa, et cetera, because the, the, otherwise the malaria probably would have, would have done them in. Uh, there's another shot of it. Uh, what's this? Uh, you got it. But the, so this is the, uh, he said Taxol, which is the drug that comes from it. This is the Pacific, yes, Pacific U. So this is up in like Northwest U.S. Um, and this was just 1967. They discovered this in our backyard here. We've got this. Now we have a new class of anti of, of chemotherapy agents from this tree. The natives use this. Native Americans use it for uh, the wood is very pliable and strong. They use it for bows and canoes and stuff. Um, what's that? Willow. Willow. No. Any ear, nose, and throat doctors in the crowd? Cocaine. Cocaine. It's coca, erythroxylum oh. coca. Um, and did you know, I'm sure you did, Sigmund Freud was addicted to this. And other, other major figures in medicine, presumably. Because they, they were just, yeah, yeah. And leading surgeons, they were just, they were just discovering it. And, and it has such remarkable properties, and everybody was trying it. Um, last one. I've actually never seen this one live. It is. It is a crocus. It's autumn crocus, source of colchicine, which has been used for hundreds of years for gout. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.